Welcome to Crypto Sapiens, a show that hosts lively discussions with innovative Web3 builders to help you learn about decentralized money systems, including Ethereum, Bitcoin, and DeFi. The podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Crypto Sapiens is presented in partnership with Bankless DAO, a movement for pioneers seeking freedom from the limitations of the traditional financial system. Bankless DAO will help the world go bankless by creating user-friendly on-ramps for people to discover decentralized financial technologies through education, media, and culture. Welcome to Decentralized, where we explore the social layer of decentralized science. What does it mean to decentralize science? My name is Elijah, and in this series, we'll consider the fundamental aspects of science as a social activity and an institution through the lens of various contributors in the DSI space. The first four episodes are published as a mini-series and lay the groundwork for future conversations. Our goal is to facilitate an exchange of ideas between people working on the solutions to these fundamental problems. Let's start the show. The first couple episodes, uh, we've been just exploring a fundamental uh, the concepts of what is, you know, what makes up DSI, these, these core aspects of decentralized science, uh, you know, what is science and how, how are we potentially decentralizing it uh, in this new world of Web3. And so the first episode was was really focused on on the very basics of what is DSI. It was a very exploratory conversation. Um, it was fantastic. I encourage everyone here to go back and listen to that. And then last week, we focused on uh, funding and IP, intellectual property. And so that was really um, <clears throat> another key aspect of D-Size is where's the money coming from? Where's it going to? Who's controlling it, right? And, and this week we'll be focusing on more of the information aspect, the knowledge access uh, and, and what it means to be able to, to publish and participate in the creation of new knowledge. And so I think that's that really one of the core aspects of science, right? Is to push forward the edges of human knowledge and disseminate that, right? And get feedback from, from our peers. Uh, and so uh, all of that, the access to knowledge and information and publishing, I think will be, uh, should be our focus of the topic today is another core pillar of DSI. And so, uh, yeah, thank you again for our guests to joining us today. And uh, I think we're going to have a wonderful discussion being able to, to dive into some of these, uh, these aspects around publishing, reputation and censorship. So, uh, Eric, I uh, saw so you were, you were uh, first up on stage and uh, able to unmute and get started here. So I'll invite you to, to give your intro first. Thank you for the invite. Once again, thanks for hosting. Um, for those of y'all who don't know, my name is Eric Van Winkle and I run ops and community for DSI Labs. Um, DSI Labs is building out a lot of the infrastructure and the tech stack needed to enable open science. Uh, we very strongly believe in the decentralized movement, in the decentralized science movement, and in the idea that knowledge should be open, accessible, and uh, should be open and accessible to anyone who wants it, and that it should additionally be censorship resistant. So this is definitely an exciting panel to come speak on. Uh, we have released DSI nodes in alpha, and for those of you you who want to go try it out, the sign-up link is at nodes.dsci.com. We normally let in about five alpha testers every other week so that they can come try out the platform, make nodes of their own, help us find bugs, and continue to develop and improve. Uh, I'm sure I'll be talking a little bit more about what nodes are further on throughout the conversation, but 
just for the sake of brevity, I'll keep the intro short and cut it off here. Yeah, my name is Keith Axline. I'm uh, the founder and developer of uh, Republic. It's uh, R E hyphen public. And um, right now it's the form of a mobile app where people can uh, collect their location, mobile sensor data, health kit data, and uh, and share it if they want to. And But our larger mission is to just help people collect and uh, understand the, the data that they're generating on a daily basis from all their devices and then uh, help them store it, but then also share it and monetize it uh, if they want to. And so I am, I'm, I'm personally really uh, interested in the DSI space. And so um, I've been trying to kind of push those collaborations with other uh, DSI players because I know that uh, citizen science and citizen generated uh, data, if that's what we want to call it, is going to play a huge role in unlocking a lot of uh, DSI use cases and just new types of, of knowledge creation. And so I think there's a, a really cool story there uh, for Republic to help with that. And uh, I'm also a developer, lead developer in a couple of other DAOs, Journo DAO and Factland DAO. Um, so I'm kind of trying to push in all the directions that interest me at once, which may or may not be a good idea. But um, yeah, I appreciate being here. I can definitely appreciate that being pulled in too many directions. Yeah, no, I appreciate you joining. And <laughs> the Republic has a has a broad scope, and um, I definitely think uh, you know some of our interests have aligned in terms of uh, concept of data marketplaces and and open you know open sourcing data and incentivizing that. So um, really glad to have you on this, on this panel. Uh, Adam, please, uh, if, you, if you'd like to give an introduction on yourself and, and how you ended up in DSI and, and doing what you're doing now, uh, fantastic. I got started in DSI following a ketamine startup during COVID and running into really serious institutional problems on the way medicine and was set up in the US. And I realized I really needed to take a step back if I was going to address the problem systemically. And um, I said, well, where are the subversive people hanging out? Where are the people who are thinking outside the box? And at the time, I had no idea that there was a, a, an emerging DSI movement, decentralized science um, in, in, uh, in Web3. But turns out there was. So I got connected with the Molecule team and the SideOut team and uh, ended up taking point on, on the SideOut project to bring it into existence um, and and build a community around it that kind of stands for um, stands at the interstate at the crossroads of psychedelics and Web three, and that means you know decentralization. It means um, it means censorship resistance. You know, one of the statements that I've started using is you know building the psychedelic library of Alexandria that can't be burned. You know, meaning there's been so much censorship of psychedelic wisdom and knowledge over the years, how do we encode that in a system that um, that would be with us, you know, for, you know, a century or more? I think that's really, yeah, with psychedelics, that's obviously an area that uh, you know, I've spoken on before, that's uh, an area that I, I work in as well with cannabis. I think that uh, censorship plays a huge role in in science in general and, and uh, publishing and access to this information, what information is getting funded to relate it back to that conversation from last week again, but uh, we'll dive more into that for sure. 
Um, so awesome, great, great. Thank you all for again for. And um, so I guess uh, to open more of the uh, you know the, the broader part of this this discussion, um, you know what are I guess your perspectives on the traditional publishing uh, system and and uh, you know, you know talking about that's where I like to start is you know trying to define what our perspectives are on science uh, as it stands. And then, uh, and then we can move into more of a topic of uh, discussion of you know what it looks like to decentralize that. So, what are your perspectives on the traditional publishing uh, system, and um, you know how maybe it has served or hasn't served the goals of science? I think I can kick us off if if no one's chomping at the bit. Um, one of the one of the women on our team, Isabel, they came from the publishing company that owns, I think it's, it's either Cell or Nature, but it's one of the major scientific publishing houses. And so she's really informed about thinking on this a lot. And there are so many challenges in the publishing industry. Um, UCLA, which is a large university here in Los Angeles, uh, actually boycotted like what, you know, one of the largest journals for over a year because of, Basically, the money comes from the government to the university. The university does all the research, pays to publish, and then pays to receive the research back. And it's this kind of like closed loop rent-seeking behavior that has just really got out of control. Um, and it's like, what is the value added that the journals are actually bringing to the table? I mean, in theory, it's editorial, but... It's just the, the unit economics on it have just gotten to the point where it's a, it's a pay-to-play model. There's a severe reproducibility crisis. Um, you know, encoding your research in a PDF is dumb. Like, it should be encoded in code so that you can, you know, run, so that someone else can run the data set and see what the actual calculations were. Um, the primary research should be stored there. Like, if you have a, if you have a research you know, article in, in cell or in nature, you maybe you post four photos, but the original data set probably had 400. If you post the original primary data source encoded on chain, um, other researchers can use that same primary research in to draw other correlations. Like you might notice that there's a, you know, this one protein here, but someone else, another researcher might go, oh, look at the next protein over. That's correlated to my research. I can use it, reuse this data set. And that's a net value to society. Um, a pretty substantial one because that kind of primary data is really expensive to gather. And most of it just ends up, you know, getting thrown away or in a PDF, which is basically useless. So that's my short, that's the short thesis. <laughs> Ask me how I really feel. <laughs> I would love to know how you really feel at some point. Uh, I'll pick it up from here. And apologies if there is a little bit of background noise. I am outside at the moment, so there may be bicycles going by. Um, yeah, I could not agree more with everything that Adam just said. Uh, there are a couple things that can even be added on to that, which I think help to highlight the current situation. The first of which is the fact that um, current incentive structures that have been built around publishing models are wildly broken. Uh, we think about the replication crisis. So you look at everything that just happened with Alzheimer's. And for those of you who aren't aware, there was recently a paper that came out 
which basically said one of the fundamental building blocks of Alzheimer's research that's gone on for the past 20 years was proven to be false. And there were even statements around images being doctored in the paper itself. Uh, we have had 20 years of wasted science based on someone wanting to move their career forward. So with everything around the replication crisis, there's something called the impact factor. And the way that you get money as a scientist is through getting citations. But nobody wants to cite things that aren't exciting, novel, that aren't you know, big impacts on the world. So you are incentivized as a scientist to try and produce results that are novel and sensational. But at the same time, sometimes that's just not how the research works out. Sometimes you may run an experiment and actually find that the results are exactly what you expected. And from the broader sense of scientific research, that's important. That kind of a null finding where, yes, we ran this experiment and it came back exactly as we thought it would, that's something that people should know because it's important and it can potentially shape future research directions. Uh, but currently, the way that you get funded is through the impact factor. And if you want to have a large number of citations, you're not going to get that through, I guess, no findings, basically. So it's important for any scientist to try and publish things that are exciting, but that leads to bad research practices. So I think that's another thing that I could kind of add on to what Adam was saying about publishing. Another thing that's worth bringing up here is data access and data availability. One of the ways that you work to push towards replicable and reproducible science is making sure that we move beyond the solitary PDF. <laughs> I mean, it's technology from the 1990s, and it has done its job up to this point, but we're getting to a point where it's no longer reliable and no longer sufficient for academic research. So the main product that we have released in Alpha at DSI Labs is called, uh, and it's a series of research that allows someone to encompass the entirety of a piece of knowledge into one on-chain data structure with permanent and immutable metadata connections stored on, with all of the underlying data stored on IPFS. That's already up, that's already running on nodes. And then beyond that, to another thing that Adam was kind of mentioning, you know, it's very possible that research should not be encoded in a PDF, but should be encoded in a variety of different formats. The code that you wrote is just as important as the summary of the findings. So another thing that we're making at DSI Labs is a method of citation for things other than just a solitary PDF. So instead of just referencing a PDF through DSI Labs' technology, you'll be able to reference, first off, a code component that you've stored in your research objects. So think of it as a GitHub repo. But even beyond that, a file in a code component. You can reference a PDF or you can reference a page in a PDF. We uh, will be enabling the ability to store videos, pictures, PowerPoints, pretty much any data format that you can think of is possible through Web3 technology, can and should be a part of the larger graph of knowledge and can be done. So yeah, just to kind of add that on. Yeah, and maybe I'll abstain from this one just because I don't have a, any 
like traditional science background. So I haven't seen any of this from the inside, but as an outsider, I'll just say plus one to all of that. And uh, I briefly worked with uh, Aaron Schwartz for a while, and this has always kind of been on my mind about making <laughs> making this stuff uh, free and releasing a stranglehold on on this type of information. Yeah, I definitely think there's a there's a lot of alignment there in, in terms of what you know, DSA Labs is trying to do and, and Republic is doing with uh, the the uh, you know accessing of data and, and that that whole philosophy of um, you know kind of solving that issue of, of publication bias that you're you're talking about. Right, this uh, there is so much data, and, and that's one of the reasons that um, I got into DSI was because you know there's been so many times I've done experiments and I know somebody else has done it. But there was there was no incentive to share that information that was generated from it, right? Uh, either it was a null finding, or right, maybe it was a negative yeah, it was a negative finding, right? There's uh, and there was just no reason to share that, right? The data there was no incentive to share the actual underlying data, like Adam was talking about. There's been so many times where I'm looking through a paper, and and yeah, there's you know summary table of results, and I'm like, well, where's the actual data? You know, I wanna I wanna run my own analysis on this. Um, and it's just not available. And so the the lack of access to that is so, um, it just holds back all of humanity, right? And, and not having this this uh, this data, and there should be some incentive to to uh, share that and, and retain ownership, right? And uh, that's kind of getting into the, um, the IP side of things, which we discussed a little bit more last week. Um, and, and we're also getting into the concept of, of censorship, right? That, that publication bias, um, is is technically a form of you know, censorship or, or maybe even cultural um, in the sense of science has put less value on those types of findings um, in terms of quote unquote. Uh, and so, uh, you know, what uh, is there, you know, what, what sort of incentives are, are you guys seeing or maybe is, is DSI Labs offering for their for their nodes or is Republic offering on this on, on their potential marketplace? What sort of things do you, do you guys see as potential solutions to these issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I can kick that off uh, with kind of a joint answer around censorship and around incentives. So to start off with, the scientific ledger of record should not be censorable. It's something that's been built by the entire world and should be open to the entire world. And that censorship can take a couple different forms, as you were kind of alluding to a second ago. It can be cultural censorship. Three of the four major publishing houses are currently censored in China. Imagine a future where, let's say, one of the global superpowers were to go to war with a much smaller neighbor. Imagine a future where we actually decided to say no your scientists can no longer contribute to the ledger of record because it's held in a small number of hands and they may or may not be politically motivated. So that has far-reaching consequences. Then you think about censorship more from an implicit standpoint, the current pay-to-access models are their own form of censorship. And it's not intended that way. I personally take the stance that most large journals, it's not that they're filled with bad people, it's that they've gotten trapped into a bad bill and don't have a way out at this point. And that bad business model is paying money to access a piece of knowledge. So if you're someone who's at a large university, a Harvard and MIT, that's not a problem. But if you are a citizen scientist, if you're someone at a smaller university who just may not have the funding to access all of these publications, 
or someone in a third world country who is actively trying to do research, who's actively trying to help, but you know, 50 bucks a paper, it adds up quickly. So uh, that kind of censorship is something that can be stopped through Web3 and blockchain technologies. Um, it is important to say that you know, there are certain pieces of information that should be kept private. And I think that this goes pretty closely into what uh, Republic is saying around how people should be able to manage and share their information as needed. That definitely is something that's important. But at the very least, we need to make sure that we're including linkages to that data in a way that is permanent and immutable. So going back to, to censorship quickly, we will be releasing gateways so that individuals can host their own versions of the scientific ledger of record, complete with both infer complete with both metadata and linkages and the underlying IPFS information. We at DSI Labs do not want to be a single point of failure for the scientific record. So we are doing our best to decentralize that to as many people as humanly possible. And I can hit on a couple other points here, but I think it might be good to pass that off to Republic. Uh, yeah, thanks. Lots to talk about there. I think, um, yeah, part of my journey has been moving from the privacy space to um, what now seems to be like the data ownership space or data dignity. Um, and that's basically because I tried to be as private as possible. I tried to like <laughs> remove all of my information from the internet. Um, and, you know, I'm a developer. I'm pretty technically savvy. And it, I realized that if I was going to keep doing it and do it properly, that it would basically be like a, a part-time job and that I would still kind of be leaking data. And so to me, like the real answer is, um, you know, more, more like open and permissioned uh, systems where your data is used in a way that you that you actually allow and license a certain way, and then that, that has some sort of enforcement mechanism and incentive mechanisms to to back it up. And I'm and I'm wondering if there's like even a meaningful difference between like the the scientific record and just somebody's personal record of activity and data throughout their lives. It, maybe it's more just like a permissioned version, um, but I think on a larger sense, we're looking at a lot of the same problems, whether it's journalism, uh, personal data, uh, DSI, um, you know, there's certain streams of data that need to be uh, shared with some people and not others that have value. And that value needs to be transmitted from um, a buyer to a seller, if you want to view it that way, or just like a provider to a consumer. Um, there's like this two-side interaction. And I think that either it's, it seemed generalizable, but maybe we could talk about what's not um, as far as DSI goes. Um, but as far as like the current implementation, I think, um, you know, Republic uses the streamer network right now to share data. And that's a decentralized network of um, basically just real-time nodes across the world just uh, sending data from one node to another so that um, you can have like a pub sub type 
data transmission that can't be censored, that can't be shut down. There's no server to shut down. And then as the network grows, it becomes harder and harder to shut down. And so that's mostly for real-time data, but that's, I think, where we're heading for uh, historical data, uh, which is not where we're at right now, but definitely what we're looking forward to in the future. Yeah, and I think that a, the, a lot of lessons can be can be translated from the realm of personal data to the realm of scientific data, right? And then um, definitely in terms of provenance and permissions, for sure. You know, there is there's a there's a distinction there. I think in the sense that uh, you know science is a uh, it, it's you know this is something we'll be discussing next week is whether science is a public good. You know, and the the incentives to share that data publicly, um, but I think the the structure of the incentives can be can be applied to both systems. Yeah, I mean, I think I get I pretty much echo what's already been said. Um, you know, the, the fact that tier one universities can click on a research paper and get instant access to them, and tier two and three universities or somewhere someone somewhere else in the world or a citizen effectively can't and the economic model basically breaks if you don't have like a exclusive you know fair you know million dollar contract with the publishing companies um is, is fundamentally bad for society and i think that that's already been kind of established um and and following on that uh, one of the things that we're thinking about currently in our current research projects that's very relevant to, to what we've already talked about is how to encrypt data on chain and who has access to those keys um, you know, if you want to update that data or anything like that. Um, but, you know, yeah, this is all very, very present to the current research projects in R that we're looking to undertake. So I completely agree with everything that's been said here. Yeah, what sort of research projects is uh, SIDAO investing in? What's the, what's the sort of process around that in, in terms of uh, choosing projects or funding them and, uh, you know, maintaining a sense of uh, censorship-free free environment? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, to be, to be fair, um, the DAO is is uh, in season zero, so we are we are still laying the groundwork. Like, um, I don't think, I'm not sure how familiar our listeners are with Beta DAO. We're we're pretty closely connected with Beta DAO and the Molecule ecosystem, so we're bar borrowing a lot of their foundational governance structure. Um, I do think we'll be making some some useful innovations and in trying to learn from from what you know ground they've already covered. Um, the project I'm most excited about right now is I think it's called the Genome Foundation, and their mission statement is to sequence the genetic data of all the world's indigenous. And I had a call with with the founder Victor in Mexico City earlier earlier this week, and he listed off you know a handful of mushroom species that we would all be familiar with, um, you know, like. Like the, the mushroom that Maria Sabina used in introducing magic mushrooms to the West, like foundational mushroom in like psychedelic culture, no one has sequenced the genome of the thing. Um, and there's a there's a lot of these you know fungi and plants that no one has ever actually done the the gene sequencing on. Them. So our goal is to um, fund that research and then store all the data on chain in a way that is you know reproducible and integrous and i think if we can if we can get it right we're going to try and get the um the microbiome in which the the fungus or plant exists as well so that essentially you could in 
maybe in theory, at least, you know, start to think about if you were to need to grow the thing later, the environmental factors in which it was growing. And we'll try and store like maybe GPS data and stuff. Um, it's really the you kind know, of these primitives of really foundational foundational data that's um, it's underfunded science and um, and so you know rather than just living on an Amazon Amazon server somewhere um, you know we'd like to store it on you know IPFS or or the equivalent so I've actually got the kickoff call for that for the prototype of that project next week and assuming everyone agrees we'll um, that'll be one of kind of our launch projects so first <laughs> super cool DSI alpha um yeah that's awesome i think uh I, I, you know perspectives like that and obviously i'm being a genome researcher myself um very interested in that particular study um and so what uh yeah i think um something i, I want to make sure we touch on today is the concept of uh reputation and credentials and and how that plays a role in uh, you know, with with publishing and censorship, and so maybe if if you wanted to continue on that, Adam, how are you know what's the process in terms of uh, you know somebody applying or or the proposed process for somebody applying for funding uh, for SIDAO, and what's the process of of vetting, and and what does that look like in terms of um, I'm guessing you guys are going to be using the IP NFT uh, system uh, from from Molecule in terms of uh, publishing, and so that provides a sense of reputation after. But if you could speak to that a little bit, that'd be great. You know, if I'm, I'm if I'm being entirely honest, I don't think I have that I have that sorted out yet, um, or that we have that sorted out yet. Um, you know, the the DSOC paper that came out recently is influencing our thinking on that. Um, at ETH New York, there was a, a, a conference kind of next door that was the public goods conference. It was hosted by Protocol Labs, and it was the fun, uh, funding the commons. And I was I'm grateful to be able to attend that conference. And a lot of the speakers there were were providing thought leadership on this on this topic, um, but I don't think it's uh, it's easily solved. Um, you know, to the point of anonymous anonymous users, um, it's it's actually non-trivial to develop uh, a reputation system for anonymous users <laughs> that is civil, that is uh, civil resistant. So I honestly don't have a good, recent, good, good, a perfect solution yet. You know, you can you can kind of use token-based system, but that's really capital-driven, frankly. Um, and there's not great. The, the infrastructure is not, not yet developed to translate offline reputation into online. Um, in fact, even quite the opposite. So. Yeah, we're really working on the primitives of this right now, and I'd I'd really be curious to know what the what the rest of the other people in the panel have have to say about this, or where where your thinking is on this. Yeah, I mean, I can chime in quickly with some of our thoughts around that. For starters, I completely agree. Reputation is tricky for quite a few reasons, but in the DSI space, at least in the context of science, we can take meaningful steps towards better reputation systems by thinking about other aspects of the scientific stack. So one thing that's important to mention is peer review. So if someone actually performs a peer review on a paper, uh, that should probably be something that's logged. 
to say, yes, this person performed six peer reviews this year. They are actively invested in the field that they're working in, and they're working some of knowledge in that field better. So I think that that's one part that we definitely want to consider. Um, also very much being influenced by some of the soulbound token thoughts. I think there are kind of two camps in Web3 right now. One of them is the soulbound token uh, way of thinking. And another one is humanity. Uh, and that's, you know, they, they can be two very distinctly different things. So just to kind of call that out, I think it's also important to, to make a distinction between anonymity, pseudonymity, and then just someone being doxxed and open. So I, I completely agree. Trying to do anonymous reputation, very, very incredibly difficult. Pseudonymous, however, does have potential. I mean, there are definitely drawbacks in it, especially whenever you th start thinking about some of the way that science is structured. For someone to be qualified to peer review a specific paper, there's a good chance that they're in a very small subfield of science with only a few peers, a dozen to tops. So just based on someone's thought process, their way of wording, way of speaking, it gets very hard if you want to be pseudonymous or anonymous to remain so indefinitely. Just based on the peer review itself, sometimes you can... <laughs> I guess, reverse engineer who the person was that wrote it based on expertise and thought processes. So that part does get kind of tricky. Then the last thing I'll say about this reputation space is going back to one of my earlier comments around incentivization for science. So currently, the H-index, novel findings, it's a problem. What we should be working towards is making the foundation of science reproducibility and replicability and kind of basing reputation off of that, where if someone has published their code and their data, they made a pre-approved analysis plan, they have followed the scientific method down to the T, regardless of whether or not the findings were actually novel, that should be a huge plus in terms of reputation. So one of the things that we're building on the platform is a badging system that takes a look at some of these different components. Did you add your code and data? Is your code and data reusable? If I open it, is there something there? Is it of a high enough quality that whenever I go into it, I can actually read and understand and manipulate your code? So for reference, we're storing all code as code dockers so that people actually can continue to reuse the code indefinitely. Think of it as kind of a, a time cap for code and data. So. Some of these questions are important and should likely form the basis of reputation. So hopefully that, uh, that's a, a sufficient answer. I don't know if anyone else has anything to add there. Uh, where are you at in, this, in between you know, uh, concept, ideation, to uh, you know, having primitives, to having you know, a, working, a working code stack? Where are you at in that process? Because that's really in alignment with what, where I'd like to, us to go. Yeah, absolutely. So the first part that we're building is four nodes, is the ability to add uh, components and link them on chain to each other. We have components running on our IPFS server in Switzerland. We have the front end user interface for people to be able to easily add them. 
And we are actively working on the citation graphs to link between different aspects of papers right now. So that is currently in development and will hopefully be, hopefully be released soon. So once we get nodes to a point where kind of that backend base functionality is up and working, I think we're going to be shifting our focus to some of these more user-specific aspects, um, which we're kind of coining as an arc. But obviously, you know, a specific user profile does not count as an arc. Um, an arc is a scientific society. So think of a DAO tooling stack for a large group of scientists focused in a particular subfield that provides some of the workflows around validation and curation services in a Web3 native fashion. Uh, that should be what's coming next after citations. Uh, we also do need to build the gateways as well so that anyone can host a version of the scientific ledger of record. And that may come before the tool stack. I would have to check with my CTO first. So it's something that we are actively thinking about. I would say it's still more in the product phase, like product development phase, than the actual technical development phase. But we're getting there very fast. And uh, maybe I can just speak to like the reputation on the provider side, people providing their own data to scientific study and research. Um, and, you know, I imagine we're going to be a lot of the similar problems. But I think a good thing to be aware of is how, uh, you know, reverse engineering was, was mentioned. And I do really worry about that. An example I use is, um, you know, uh, somebody's address was able to be found by a stalker because he saw a photo of her and it was high enough resolution that he could see her, the reflection on her eye of the address of her apartment that she was standing in front of. And I think as technology gets you know, more and more high fidelity, we're going to find that like more and more things that can be known will just be easily known. And so I feel like we're going to have to rely more on um, cultural uh, norms and perhaps licensing and enforcement and data fingerprinting um, to be able to trace data that was generated from a source and then make sure that it's, it wasn't used uh, against the license of that that data and so i think that's a problem we're all gonna we're all gonna face and republic i imagine is going to be like a, both a part of that solution by allowing people to um kind of prove who they are in a way that they feel comfortable that's only scoped to the needs of the you know the study or the use case that they're contributing their data for um but also we're you know, as other people innovate in this area, I'm hoping the Republic uses those tools as well. So, um, you know, civil resistance uh, and I, I think zero knowledge proofs may make this somewhat easier. I'm still, I need to get my hands dirty with that. I'm wondering if anyone's ever had that brought up to them in this for this use case. Yes, we thought about using it's 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 pretty hard math and um it's certainly beyond beyond my engineering capabilities um but using it for um, patient data in like if you're doing patient data for psychedelics you need it to be uh you know truly anonymous um 
so there's, there might be an application there. Um, it's probably the most direct thing that comes up in, in that regard. And it seems like the no matter how good the math is, eventually it'll fall down under real world circumstances, like the the case that I think Eric was talking about, where okay, this is peer reviewed. We only know, or we we know three people in the world hold this credential, um, so we know it's like it doesn't really matter what what the math is there. Um, it's just like the context of the situation uh, is kind of de-anonymizing. And so, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to, you know, open the door that it's not just a technological solution necessarily, but something that we kind of have to figure out from a different, from a lot of different angles. And like, if we, if we give over to the fact that there might not be uh, privacy might not be technically possible, then, you know, how are we going to ensure that we can all live our lives the way we kind of expect to be able to? Some of that comes down to the ability to publish smaller units and, and, and opening up the publishing process uh, to where, you know, if a researcher can, can publish just a data set, well, then there's definitely less fingerprints and less, you know, forensic information regarding the context of, of some authorship or something and you know if they can write a small small description of a data set instead of a large uh manuscript then then maybe there's less of those uh author specific fingerprints or if we can open up the peer review process to be more of like a constellation model which doesn't require necessarily the one or two other experts in the world uh who are on the same level as the author to to provide that but it could be opened up in in more of a decentralized way where Experts who are more focused on specific aspects of it can chime in, and and you know create a complementary sort of review for many people. I think that's those are the new types of ways that we need to think about as we both decentralize in technology, but also decentralize in our our use cases and the the workflows that we've kind of gotten used to. I think um, everything is going to not just mapping the old system to this new new system. It's like, you know, kind of fundamentally changing the way that we do things. So uh, is there any, any sort of parting uh, takeaways or or uh, you know, big key points that any, any of you would like to, to bring, uh, bring up into this, this conversation? Um, I'll just say quickly that I don't know if it's just the way that I think about things, but I think it's kind of, it's interesting how it's hard to silo any of these um, these topics without, you know, blending in with <laughs> all the other ones, like in censorship leads to like incentives and reputation and uh, privacy and, you know, everything kind of um, is intertwined in a way that's, um, I don't know, it can be disorienting. So I think it's good that we like uh, have these conversations and I'm, uh, I've, I've learned a lot from, everyone here. So thank you. Yeah, I just want to echo that. It's a little overwhelming to realize that every single piece of this system is so wildly, intricately connected. It makes it to solve any individual problem on its own. Uh, it's really exciting to see the DSI space kind of exploding with different projects and different concepts. And it's also fantastic to see some of these connection events happening different podcasts, different Twitter spaces, different community calls, 
that work to bring together some of the people designing different aspects of these systems uh, who strongly believe that any one individual project will likely fail on its own. But if we can confront this problem, these series of problems or singular problems, depending on how you want to look at it, as a larger community, we have a much better chance of being able to make a meaningful impact on the world. Just to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation, uh, everything that just came out about Alzheimer research is absolutely devastating and is a direct result of broken incentives and some of the stuff that we've been talking about today. It is billions of dollars wasted. God knows how many hours, months, years of human suffering, all because of broken incentive structures. So if we can make an impact on that, it'll go a long way for the world. And it's exciting to see and to be a part of. Absolutely, 100%. And following up on community, I just want to kind of put a, a little bit of a shameless plug in here for the Entheome project and where we're going. Phase two of the project is to sell kits that people can take out into the field themselves and do data collection. Um, so speaking of community, speaking of really decentralizing the process, um, putting the, you know, getting the citizen back in citizen science and allowing, uh, you know, interested mycologists to go out the, into the globe and actually find, you know, samples and make that, you know, on-chain primary data. Um, I just want to kind of mention that primitive um, as, a, as a layer of the stack because it hadn't been mentioned yet. Um, and I think that could get really interesting and just broaden the base of the pyramid of the you know, primary research that's available to us. So, Love it. Yes. Science, <clears throat> science is an essentially, uh, a, you know, social and, and, and I think that decentralizing the inputs and the outputs are, are a huge goal. So Eric, Eric, thank you for joining us on stage. Did you have uh, something you wanted to, to add or ask? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for uh, letting me come up here. Um, my name's Eric. I'm uh, one of the co-founders of JournoDAO uh, with Keith, and I, I spend a lot of time just kind of following Keith and Flo around Web3 because they're doing all the interesting things. Um, and uh, I make most of my living still as, as a science journalist and, uh, you know, just wanted to say, like, as I'm listening to um, you all describe the, the tools that you're working on on building. Uh, it's the kind of thing that um, at JournoDAO, I think we would be really excited to have access to or to, to even even fork something uh, to have like a, a version of those, those kind of tools for, for journalists uh, and, and not just people covering science, but to have a, a way for people producing the news to show their work uh, on chain uh, in a transparent and immutable way. It's a big part of uh, our, our mission and something in the long term we'd like to accomplish to, uh, you know, rebuild trust in, in journalism. Uh, so just wanted to, you know, throw that out there that uh, there's, uh, I think, a big opportunity for for partnership there, uh, I think of journalists as journalism as kind of the you know the less less rigorous, uh, lazy version of of science. <laughs> we, we do kind of what you guys do, just uh, with only ten percent of the rigor. Um, so um, you know, if we can uh, pick up some of your your crumbs that you're building and, and use them, uh, I think it'll be good for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's been exciting to see the just wild variety of applications that this kind of 
data provenance can have. Um, I've been talking to a couple friends who are lawyers, a couple friends who are doctors, consultants, accountants, journalists. This base concept of being able to link information on chain and to provide data prominence, a version history, and a reviewable workflow, um, possibly something similar to Git, which if you look on my profile, I have a, a tweet about a potential Git workflow for peer review that I just nerd out on 24-7. Uh, yeah, it can definitely be used in a wide variety of applications.